we're continuing our look at King Jesus and what he did and who he is, his identity and all that. And as we, we start, I, I want to make a confession. I didn't mean to cheat on my test. It was a total accident. This is a true story. When I was in college, I was a history major, and it was my first real college class. Some of the college students in here know exactly what that's like. This was my first 300-level class. I'd gone to community college for a few years, and this was the real deal. These are when it actually started counting. It was my favorite class. It was a U.S. history class with my favorite professor, Dr. Kerry Irish. He's one of those professors that's pretty hardcore. He didn't believe in papers or quizzes or assignments. He believed in tests. And so there were three tests for each quarter, and that was what your entire grade was on. So if you were not good at tests, good luck passing. Well, see, I had thought, oh, I did really well at community college. I got this down. I'm, I'm smart. I'm ready to go. And so I walked into the test not prepared. So I sat there. I'm looking at this, you know, 20-page test and the Scantron. Remember those, right, the little bubbles you fill in? I had that next to me, and I'm looking at this test, and I'm going, Oh, my word. And I started, this was a history class, but I started doing some math in my head. If I get a zero on this test, and it's one-third of my grade, then i got to get perfect scores on my other two tests to get a D. That did not sound like fun. And then I started doing some economics, and I started going, how many dollars am I wasting in this class and I started thinking about, okay, then I started thinking of, you know, uh, bureaucracy. Can I drop the class at this point? What's the school allow me? So I was doing all sorts of learning there. And as I was doing it, I was staring straight ahead, you know, looking off into the distance, pitying myself. And the person in front of me held up their Scantron. And I couldn't remember anything that we talked about in class, even though I'd read the books and I'd done the, the work, but I saw that Scantron, and I could remember every single line that had been filled in by the valedictorian from their high school who was sitting in front of me who would have a perfect score in the class in, four, in six months. Pretty awesome, right? Yeah, except for I saw it, and then once you see it, you can't unsee it. So I'm reading these questions, and I can remember what he had put on his test. And so, of course, now it's like, well, oh, yeah, that's the right answer. I knew that, but I didn't. And so I started filling in the blanks, and as I'm sitting there, not only have I done history and economics and bureaucracy and uh, math, now I'm doing some religion. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, man, Lord, I'm cheating. <laughs> I didn't mean to. It wasn't a plan, but I'm cheating. And so I got about halfway through. I got past all the answers that I saw on his Scantron, and I finished the rest of the test. And then I said, I can't do this. I'm going to get expelled from school. One, it's, it's, it's on me. I know this is wrong. And so I confessed it to the Lord, and I said, Lord, I'm sorry. And I went back through, and I changed about three-quarters of the answers that I really didn't know except for the fact I saw it on his Scantron. And I proceeded to get a very, very low D. Actually, it was a D in the F range um, <laughs> on this test, and I did better on the next two tests. But I went back, and I missed them all on purpose, the ones that I saw from his test. 
And I would love to hold myself up as this paragon of virtue and so on. But I was really, really tempted to leave that test how it was. Because then I was thinking, well, you know, the next two tests I don't have to study as hard because I'm going to get a good... And, you know, you, just, you can hear all the things in your head as it's going through. But I praise the Lord that I, I, I confessed it, I repented, I, I, through the Lord, fixed it, and then I never was tempted again to cheat. Never once. So praise be to God that that's the case. But isn't it true that temptation is universal for all of us? Sometimes we get tempted by the same old temptation. Other times it's something totally brand new that we had never expected. Maybe you're tempted to lie or cheat or steal or lust. Maybe you're tempted to look the other way when wrongdoing is happening. Maybe you're tempted with lust, whether it's mental or physically acting out on it. Maybe you indulge in sinful anger and you let your mouth strike up a fire that rages out of control and you follow suit and rage out of control as well. Maybe, maybe your place is pride, and you look around at all the people and you go, oh, those weak-willed, those, those ill-willed people that give in to their lying, cheating, stealing, and lust. Or maybe we just talk bad about people around us. We all have places where temptation can get a hold of us. We all have temptations, every single one of us. But today, we are going to see our King, our Lord, our Savior, and how He was tempted. In Hebrews, it says that he was tempted in every way like we are so we can sympathize with him. So we're going to learn a little more about Jesus' identity. And so when the phrase, truly this is the Son of God, is uttered, there is no more true statement in the universe. And we can see that in how he succeeds where we fail. He succeeds where Israel fails because he is the Son of God. So turn with me if you haven't already. and you're, We're in Matthew 4. Here's our big idea today. Jesus submitted to the Father's will. And where Israel failed, King Jesus succeeded by obeying God. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, and where Israel and us, let's be honest, failed, King Jesus succeeded by obeying God. See, these temptations that we see today, yeah, there's only three, but these three hit Jesus in three distinct spots. The first one hits him in his weakness, the second one in his strength, and the third one in his work that he was called to do. But praise be to God that he conquered them. Praise be to God that we belong to this king, and he is the one that conquers temptations, no matter how strong. Puritan John Owen gives us this good reminder. Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man. Instead, they draw out what's already there. They draw out what's already there. See, this is not about trying harder. This is not do-it-yourself-ism. This is not self-reliance. Instead, it's the upside-down world of Jesus' gospel where the ones who go low go high. The ones who are humble are raised up. The ones who serve are served. The ones who suffer reign. I mean, remember what Matthew 20 says. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave. Even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the picture that we see here. So turn with me to verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the first 
part of this is that Jesus submitted to the will, to God's will, to the Father's will. So we see the cast of characters here, don't we? And we see the setting. It's in the wilderness. It's a a deserted place. It's a place where you go to get robbed. It's not a place you vacation. Most likely this was out near the Dead Sea where not even this humongous body of water could you take from because it was full of salt and poisonous. We see the three people involved. We see Jesus, we see the Holy Spirit, and we see the devil. The spirit that had come upon Jesus last week at his baptism is now leading him out into the wilderness. This initial place really doesn't look very good. It looks like this is going to be a failure. This looks like not a good place. But when we get to the end of chapter, of verse 11, we see this is a victorious place, just like the cross looks like a terrible place that Jesus is going to. But then Sunday morning comes, resurrection happens, and we see how great it is. So he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now we need to understand that this temptation is not God-ordained. It's, it's God-ordained, but not God-inflicted. And we're going to kind of push in on this a little bit to understand the difference between a temptation and a test and how actually they're the same thing, but just a different perspective. So the first thing we see is that God himself doesn't tempt anyone. We saw this back in James chapter 1, verse 13. Instead, our temptations are a part of God's sovereign plan. If we overcome them, we are strengthened. If we succumb to them, we know we still have a long ways to go. So this spirit, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the third member of the Trinity, and he is leading Jesus out there. The devil, we've seen him before. His name means accuser or slanderer. Satan and the devil are the same person, the same name. It's just two different languages. Devil is from the Greek. Satan is from Hebrew. So the devil tempts and the spirit leads. See the two roles here. And Matthew wants us to see very, very clearly that this is not saying, this is not saying that God tempted him, nor is it saying that the devil has some uncontrolled power that, you know, balances out God. Because that's our temptation is when we look at something like this, we go, hey, you know what, this is God doing it. Matthew's saying, no, no, this is not God. It's a part of God's plan, but it's not God doing the tempting. That's the devil. Oh, and by the way, the only reason the devil can tempt is because God's allowing him to attempt, to tempt. And that's the picture we have to come at. It's that tension that we see in the Bible where it doesn't quite make sense one way, but if we have the other way, now it's balanced and it makes sense. So this word tempted, it can mean test, it can mean trial. Just like with the the lure, the temptation can be something to make us grab onto and sin and die. And that's what Satan's trying to do. And God, on the other hand, is saying, this is a test to show that you're not going to bite onto that and you're going to go a different direction. Erwin Lutzer says, temptation is not sin, it's a call to battle. It's a call to fight. When temptation rears its ugly head, it's our time to fight in the Lord's strength, in the spirit, to be able to say no to it. Temptation and testing are the same coin, just opposite sides. Satan intends to get Jesus to go opposite of what God has planned. And the father instead is saying, look, this is going to be my son, showing how great he is that he didn't give in. Temptation must be seen in the context of testing because God is in control of both the tempter, Satan, and the situation, the temptation. God is in control of all of it. 
And we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that we will not be tempted greater than what we can withstand with his strength. And there's a woodpecker up there. Anybody got a BB gun? Want to go give it a shot? He just wants in. Someone let him in. Come on. So what the devil sees as temptation, God may simultaneously use to prove Jesus' faithfulness. I mean, this is the picture of the cross, isn't it? The devil goes, I'm going to get him. And God goes, go ahead, and I got you. See that? It's the, it's the same thing. It was a, Jesus is going to be murdered, and his murdering is going to accomplish God's will. It's that same balance, that same picture. Ambrose writes, the devil tempts that he may ruin, but God tests that he may crown what a cool picture. Now, it's important that we get that this is not a, this is a place that sometimes people will try to disqualify Jesus. Uh, there's several different cults out there that will say, well, this, Jesus is tempted, so therefore he can't be God. But that's not what we see here. What we see is, yes, Jesus, the divine part of Jesus. Remember, we talked a little bit about the Trinity last week, and maybe your minds are still hurting from that. But you're a, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And the 100% God could not be tempted, but the 100% man could be. And that's where the devil is pushing in on. He's looking at trying to get the, the human portion of Jesus to sin because the God portion could never do that. And so we also see that the Bible says he was tempted and he is God. So we have those two together. It has to be that he is God and yet he was tempted. So our first point was that Jesus submitted to the Father's will. Now our second point is that Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Now we remember that the Old Testament is an outline. And I don't mean an outline like point A, point B, point C, subpoint, whatever. What I mean is it's literally a two-dimensional outline, like a cave painting. And it's, you can kind of make out what it is. But then Jesus shows up and it's fleshed out and it's three-dimensional. It's a three-dimensional rendering of this two-dimensional fact. And we see that right here. When Matthew says, Jesus is the better and true Israel. He is able to do all the things that Israel could not do. Now watch this. Jesus escapes a wicked king bent on his destruction. Just like Moses when he ran away into the wilderness. Jesus passes through the water and is declared God's son, just like Israel passes through the Red Sea, and then God says, you are my children. And then right here, Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days, where he is tested. Israel goes into the wilderness, fails the test for 40 years. So Israel makes it a habit of failing their tests. Jesus succeeds in triumphs. And then, remember, after Israel's been in the wilderness for 40 years, they go and they invade the promised land. Spoiler alert, next week, Jesus invades the promised land after he's passed the test. And he goes into Canaan and begins the marching through Canaan with the new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus is that new Joshua who steps in and succeeds where the old and Israel failed. So the main point here of, of what Israel was trying to do in the wilderness was, are you God's children or are you not? And they failed over and over again. But where Jesus comes in and takes and doesn't fail, where Israel had. Israel came in, they failed, 
Jesus is going to nail it. Look at verse 2. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yes, he was. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So right here, Jesus is tempted in his weakness. Forty days of not eating. He is tempted in his weakness. Spurgeon writes, Jesus had been baptized and was led into the wilderness by the devil. After times of great spiritual growth, believers must not suppose that it will, Christian life will be all sweetness. We have to fight the good fight of faith, and our great adversary is not slow to begin the encounter. We are pilgrims in a strange land, and so we expect to find rough places on the road to heaven. Satan seizes opportunities. When he finds us weak, as the Savior was through his long fasting, and when he finds us in trying circumstances, as when he was hungry in the desert, that's when he comes to tempt. So the first thing we see is that the, the temptation is strong when we are weak. Just like, just like when we are at the end of our rope, that's when it seems like temptation is the hardest to resist. So 40 days and 40 nights, this is about as long as a human being can, can, can not eat and not do permanent damage and kill themselves. Um, these temptations, they come at him in different forms. But it, what's interesting, though, is the devil has no new tricks, right? He says, if you are the son of God, then do this. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Of other places this happens? Well, it happens on the cross, doesn't it? Jesus is on the cross, and what do the people say to him? Well, if you're the son of God, I mean, you healed others, come down. Even the thief next to him goes, well, if you're the son of God, save yourself and us, right? Trying to slide himself in there. It's the same temptation. And that would honestly be probably the weakest moment for Jesus, even weaker than this right here. The devil has no new tricks. He comes after Jesus in his weakness. So what is this temptation all about? Well, when we look at it, we need to not look at what is tempted, but Jesus' response. Because Jesus' response cuts through all the baloney from the tempter. This has nothing to do with making bread wrong. This has nothing to do with uh, having some sort of miracle to prove things. It was a temptation for him to be inconsistent with his mission ordained by God. It's a temptation to go around what God had planned for him. Satan's aim was to entice Jesus to use his power to go against where the Lord had led him. Because who was it that led him into this wilderness to fast? It was the Spirit. And so the temptation is, hey, you know what? Jesus, you're all powerful. Go, just, just, just a little bit of bread. You'll be fine. I mean, come on. What's the use of having all these powers if you don't use them? But just like Israel had demanded bread in the wilderness and died there, Jesus denies himself bread and lives. Will Jesus believe the voice, you are the Son of God, or does he have to have some other proof to it that he uses his power in a certain way? Are we going to do it God's way, or are we going to do it our way? Some people get hung up on this, this word if here in verse 3. Satan's not asking Jesus to deny whether he's the Son. Instead, he's asking, what kind of son are you going to be? Are you in the Israel mold, where you do it well for a while and then you fall away? Or are you something different? And Jesus is something different. He tells him, command these stones into bread. And you know what, folks? You better believe the stones would have done it. 
the stones would have absolutely, poof, gone to bread. And all the different kinds. And probably still warm. You better believe that those, that those stones would have listened to him. So Jesus comes back at the devil and he uses the Bible. He goes right back at him and he says, no, you, you, you don't get it. You're getting it wrong. And he quotes from Deuteronomy. All of Jesus' quotes are going to be from Deuteronomy from the time that Israel was in the wilderness. See the connections here? See how he's fulfilling what Israel couldn't do? Moses had just reminded the Israelites that this was a period of testing. And in Deuteronomy 8.3 states that God allowed Israel to be hungry so that he might provide for them. He says, I'm going to let you be hungry because I am going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of your needs. Just like Israel was not able to provide for themselves, Jesus wasn't able to provide for himself, but God provides. And look at what God did with the Israelites. He provided water. He provided food. Oh, and he also made their clothes not wear out. That doesn't happen in my household with my kids. The clothes wear out faster than we can get them off the shelves. But the Israelites, their clothes, their sandals would not wear out. Part of God's providence. God's provision to feed them. Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is where life resides. See, Jesus knows that the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. Just like it says in Ephesians. And Jesus wields that sword deftly to cut down Satan's, Satan's attempt to get him to sin. So what's the lesson here for us in this first one? Well, both us and Christ must rely completely on God for sustenance. We will die without food, it's true. However, we will die spiritually and be lost forever without God. And so this first lesson, and actually it's the lesson of all three temptations, is that Jesus cannot bypass the road of suffering. He cannot do it without God. And so we have that same lesson. And just like Jesus relives the experience of the Israelites and succeeds, he's already done that. He's succeeded on our behalf so that we can live the life that we are required to. So rise up under that. Jesus has done it. Now look at verses 5 through 7, the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So our third point is that Jesus succeeded only by obeying God. Jesus succeeded by obeying God. So just how the first temptation was in his weakness, this second temptation is right in his wheelhouse. I mean, the devil is going to the guy who wrote the Old Testament to tell him how to interpret it. If there's not a place of strength, I don't know what would be. But yet the devil goes right at it and says, this is what you said, and this is what you need to do. And Jesus goes, no, you don't understand. This is the idea that goes all together. And let's see this together. So first off, we have the holy city, that's Jerusalem. We have the temple, the holy place. And then we have the holy scripture. And this pinnacle of the temple, there's kind of a, a hidden messianic thing here. This is the corner of the temple on the southeast corner by the Kidron Valley. Across from it is the Mount of Olives, which we'll see as we discuss the crucifixion here in a few weeks. And there's this 450-foot drop, which numbers just get lost. That's a football field and a half down. 
And so Jesus would be standing on this corner and he would jump off and angels would swoop and pick him up and the place that they would land him is a gate on the southeast side. This gate is called the Golden Gate or the Shushan Gate. This was the gate that tradition held the Messiah would come through. They believed it so, so firmly and they didn't want to miss the Messiah that the Jews in Jesus' time would not lock the gate. They left it ajar on purpose just in case the Messiah needed to let himself in at night. They hadn't done the hide key yet, right? So it was a place for the Messiah to come in. So when Jesus falls off of this, he would have been swooped up. The people would have seen. He would have walked in, waltzed in to the temple and everybody would have rejoiced. Ironically, when uh, Jerusalem is conquered by the Muslims, they wall in that gate and put concrete there. And then they put a cemetery right in front of the gate because a good Jew would not walk across the cemetery and the door would definitely be blocked to keep him out. Kind of missing the point of the Messiah because I don't think that could have stopped Jesus. But think about that, that they had this picture of the Messiah and they were waiting and their eyes were looking right there. They wouldn't go to Bethlehem. They wouldn't go anywhere else. They were looking. When he comes through the gate, we know it's him. And so this is Jesus being able to do that. And the devil quotes from the Bible. He quotes the Bible to Jesus. Psalm 91. There's all these external threats in the first 10 verses in Psalm 91. All these things are coming on the psalmist, and the devil goes, hey, Jesus, just create something bad happening so God can step in and do it, and praise be to God, right? Isn't that what you're doing? There's nowhere in the Bible that justifies us creating something to force God's hand to step in and fix it. And this is the strategy, right? Instead of going for just a weak spot one and then the next weakest spot, the devil goes for the weak spot and then the strong spot. Because we think, oh, we're really strong there. I don't need to be aware. I don't need to be on watch. This is like spiritual jujitsu, attacking them where they're weak, so they put all their forces towards the weak, and then you attack them where they think they're strong and they fail. And this is what Jesus conquers here. So this temptation... This is a bribery, manipulative attempt to get God to do something. If I do this, then God will do that. And we see that, that something of Jesus' handling of Scripture here. He says, yeah, devil, you can quote Scripture. I can quote Scripture, but you need to understand the bigger picture of Scripture. See, the devil knows at least some of Scripture, but he perverts it and he twists it and twists it and twists it. Really what the devil's saying is, Jesus, if you believe what the Bible says, then put your money where your mouth is. It's like he's saying, hey, you believe God, don't you? Well, then do something about it. Step out on your faith. Do not ask for me. Just ask for yourself. Come on, show us what God's able to do. Don't you believe God would do it? Step out there and do it. One commentator says, this is a very devilish temptation for Jesus to gain the following of the nation of Israel in the central place of Israel's religion. By doing it right here and doing it this way, people would follow him, people would listen to him. But in order to do that, he's got to disobey God's word. So Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy in his response. And he says, you have to understand, this is not the right way to see it. 
See, Scripture is always interpreted by Scripture. We harmonize Scripture together. Because, yeah, sometimes in our feeble minds, it looks like Scripture doesn't work. It looks like it's contradicting itself. But Jesus is going to go, I know the deeper magic. I know that there is actually a way to make this all make sense. See, the devil is quoting and saying, put your faith in God's promises. Jesus is saying, you also need to reverence God's holiness. The devil goes, well, wait a sec, wait a sec. You, you can't trust God too much. And the devil go, the, Jesus goes, yeah, but if you are testing him, you don't trust him. It's the picture of not trusting if you don't test. See, there are times when Psalm 91, urging daring faith in the face of trials, is the, wins the day. And then there's times where Deuteronomy 6 and its teaching of, of Reverent faith wins the day. But what we have to understand is that the whole counsel of God must come together. See, Jesus believes Psalm 91 just as firmly as he believes Deuteronomy 6. But he believes that if you use Psalm 91 rightly, if you use it in its context, if you use it in its greater context, it is not giving you permission to go, well, if I jump off this building, God's got to save me. God is not the servant of our leaps. God is not the servant of our decisions, and then he has to bless them. Because the question is, do we follow God or does God follow us? Here's another way to understand this. In the Bible, Jesus lays out a really clear picture of the double love command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in this, Jesus jumping off here doesn't do either. It doesn't honor God. It doesn't love your neighbor. It doesn't do either one. See, the devil is trying to, to get Jesus to say, God's got to do what I say, not i got to do what God says. Spurgeon writes, Some people are engaged in activities that are hazardous to their souls. They are in the midst of evil, yet they say, God can keep me safely here. Yes, he can. But also know that you have no right to go voluntarily to be surrounded by temptation. If we are continually tempted in a various situation, we must not presume upon the goodness of God to keep us. It is our business to flee as fast as we can from that sin. See, God does not put his servants on the pinnacle of the temple, but the devil does. So Jesus, in the strength of the fact he knew God's word, the fact that he could stand with God's word and completely put it out there, shot down the devil's attempt to try to trick him by using God's word. And isn't this what we see today? We see people taking little bits of the Bible out of context, little bits of the Bible, and say, well, this is what the Bible says. And then we're sometimes kind of, well, yeah, it does say that. But if you read it in its context, or if you read it in the fuller biblical entire Bible's context, it doesn't say that. And if you think that that's going to go away, it's only going to get worse. So Jesus is not overcome in his weakness. He's not overcome in his strengths. What else is left? Well, look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It's interesting that devil keeps taking Jesus to higher places and Jesus just continues to go lower and lower. So what is this third temptation? Well, this third temptation is work. The third temptation is the assignment that Jesus was given to do. Jesus was told to go 
and save humanity. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. His job was to go and save people. It was to go and be the salvific lamb. And so this temptation is a shortcut in Jesus' work. It's trying to find a fast way to get it done. Satan was offering the kingdoms with just one little bow. The, the, the Greek word is aorist, which means it's a one-time thing. This is not Satan saying, come and bow down to me for all of time. It's just, little, just put your knee down and bow once and you're good. And it'll all be fine. Instead of going to the cross, Satan is offering him just a simple kneeling down. Just think of all the people he could save. Right? We know that Jesus' life is probably three more years before he gets to the cross. That's three years of people that might die and not be saved because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. I mean, the devil could have said, hey, if you bow right now, we're going to get three more years of people saved. Come on, think about it. Just worship me for a second. The devil offers to give Jesus something that he's going to earn on the cross without having to go to the cross. Whether he could or not, we don't know. Most likely not. You think about it. These shortcuts are to good things. God gave us pain to let us know we shouldn't be doing something. If your hand's on a hot stove, the pain of that is to say move. So this is a shortcut to a good thing. Jesus going to the cross was not going to be enjoyable. But yet he said, worship me and you can skip the cross. Worship me and you'll get all these people saved. Worship me and this good thing. See, the devil loves to use things that are good in a right place at a wrong time. Is that not the definition of sin? Is that, that's the definition of sin throughout most of the things we do. A good thing at the wrong time. A good thing at the right, wrong place. See, Jesus is being tempted to not go to the cross here. Everything must be in view of the cross He's saying, don't go to the cross. You don't have to. Now, does the devil know the cross is coming? I don't know. But Jesus does. And so this temptation would be exceedingly powerful. What's ironic, though, is that if we look back in Deuteronomy, in those passages that he's been quoting, sandwiched right in the middle, is God saying, I will wipe out the kingdoms and give them all to Israel. So the devil is simply offering Jesus something that God's already given to Israel and to the king who is Jesus. He says, take the easy way out. Just do it. Israel succumbed, didn't they? They didn't, take, they didn't do the hard work of kicking everybody out of Canaan. They let this group stay and that group stay and this group stay, and then eventually those groups kicked them out. We cannot let the ends justify the means. See, Jesus loved man, but that's not the highest love. He had a higher love, and that was for God. His love for God was greater than his love for us. So Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy 6, and he says, you are not allowed to put the Lord your God to your test. You shall worship him only and him alone. So Christ was in the wilderness. He passes the test. So Jesus is tempted in his weakness, in his strength, and in his work, or to achieve good outcomes via shortcuts. So the question is, is was he tempted in every way that we were? Some people will say, no, no, he wasn't. He wasn't tempted like us. I'm tempted in this spot. Now, it's true that Jesus did not experience all six billion temptations that are being experienced today, but he experienced these three figureheads that 
all of them come under. Because you're either weak, you're either strong, and you're working. That's all of them. All knit under there. Now, sadly, we are, we are tempted to try to find other ways to say, well, Jesus really didn't experience what we did. One of the most common ones is, well, he never gave in to temptation, so he doesn't know how hard it is. He doesn't get how hard it is. I, I gave in because it was really tough. Jesus, Jesus didn't do that. I want to read you from C.S. Lewis as he addresses this. He says, no man knows how bad it is, he is, till he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you only find out the strength of the German army when you fight against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by walking against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered, sheltered life by giving in. We never find our strength of the evil, against the evil impulses inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only one who never yielded, is also the only man who knows how complete temptation is. I heard, I heard one pastor explain it this way. It's like a weightlifter who wants to grab a bar and lift it above his head. Right? Someone goes up and lifts it up and they get it up off the ground just an inch and they go, wow, that's heavy. No, you don't get it. You didn't experience the full weight. Another person takes it up to their thighs and, oh, that's really heavy. No, nope, still don't get it. Another one takes it up and gets it up to here. Oh, that's really heavy. I can barely hold it. No, you don't get the full weight until you have it above your head. And that's where Christ took it. He felt all of the weight of temptation that we will never experience because we constantly give in before it gets to the worst. But praise be to God that he did. Because that means our king, the family that we are a part of, the person whose strength we can tap into is the one who is victorious, who knows how bad temptation is and has experienced it all. So we have the concluding verse, verse 11. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus commands it. The devil has to do it. Just like when the, if he'd have told the stones to be bread, they'd have been bread. The devil must leave. And then look at this. The angels come and care for him, fulfilling Psalm 91. The exact passage that the devil was trying to manipulate to use on Jesus. All oh, these, make up something so God will come and take care of you. Well, Devil, you're gone. God's going to come take care of me. God keeps his promises. So Jesus defeats, fill in the blank, death, fear, suffering, temptation, devil, sin, isolation, despair. He defeats all of them. And the list could go on and go on. But Jesus was tempted to show us something, that he is able to. To help us when we are tempted. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For being he himself was suffered, for because he himself was suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. A savior who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and yet without sin. One author writes, evidently the thought goes like this. We are likely to feel unwelcome in the presence of God because we struggle with temptation. We feel God's purity and perfection, so we seem to be unsuitable in his presence. And we should. But then we remember that this king, this high priest, this mediator, is a sympathetic mediator. He feels it with us, not against us. This awareness of Christ's sympathy makes us bold to come before him. He knows our cry. He's tasted our struggle. He bids us come with confidence when we feel our need. Go to him. He knows. And I'll leave you with this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our help to help in time of need. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for his death on the cross in our place. But more importantly, in light of today's passage, thank you that he came and experienced all the temptation and he destroyed it. Lord, that he conquered temptation on our behalf. And Lord, the same spirit that led him into the wilderness and empowered him and, and, and strengthened his flesh is the same spirit that can abide in us if we are in you. So I pray that we would latch on to you for dear life and that, Lord, you would fill us. Lord, whatever temptations are, are gripping us even now, that, Lord, your strength and your power would unfasten those temptations from us. Lord, make us more like you through how you beat the temptations in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.